In Matthew 3, in verses 13 through 17, we read of the baptism of Jesus. The text tells us, the New American Standard text tells us, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, one of the reasons why I think this account is very important is because it is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Most of these events of Jesus in Matthew from here on out, many of them will be recorded in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But this is also recorded in the Gospel of John. If it were just recorded in one, it would be important. But especially important if it is recorded in all of these Gospels. Let's focus right now on the Gospel of Matthew. The Bible says Jesus arrived from Galilee. That word arrived is used here for the last time in Matthew to introduce an important character. In Matthew 2 and verse 1, the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Saying In Matthew 3, in verse 1, it came about in those days that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's the same word for arrived, translated came there, came. Uh, but, but here Jesus arrives. The, the, the Magi arrived. The uh, John arrives. Jesus arrives. And the Bible tells us that he comes from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized. That is a trip of around 65 or 70 miles. It takes the diligent purpose, a great intent to travel that long to be baptized. Verses 14 and 15 are unique to the Gospel of Matthew. John tries to talk him out of this. He says, I have need to be baptized of you. Why do you come to me? Jesus has permitted it this time. Let me ask you a question. You can raise your hand to answer. Um, How many of you at some point have either heard a lesson... Or a series of lessons on the seven last words of Jesus. The words that Christ spoke from the cross. One of the first series I ever remember is a preacher preaching on those statements. Let me ask you another. 
How many of you have ever heard a sermon or series of sermons on the seven first words of Jesus? I never had. Never thought about the idea until several years ago that I saw someone mention it in the book. This is not the first recorded statement of Jesus. That appears in Luke 2. As Jesus states in verses 48 and 49 that he must be about his father's business. But this is the second recorded statement of the earthly Jesus. Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. I understand John's reluctance to do this. Because after all, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Matthew 3, verse 2, verse 8, and verse 11 indicate that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is a baptism in keeping with repentance or in bearing, you bore fruit to show repentance in verse 8. It describes a baptism of repentance in verse 11. Mark 1, 4, Luke 3, 3. said those who were baptized of John, uh, it tells us their baptism was for forgiveness of sins. We could have added to this Matthew 3 and verse... Matthew 3 and verse 6, where those who were baptized by John in the Jordan confessed their sins. Why does Jesus need... To be baptized. When the New Testament constantly affirms that he has no sin. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, one of the many passages that affirm his sinlessness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who knew no sin became sin. He was tempted in all points like we, but he without sin. Hebrews 4 and verse 15. This troubled early Christians. And early Christians had wrote, they wrote things... Along this subject, answering this question, why was Jesus, why was Jesus baptized when he has no sin? Just to think about it. Now, the answer he gives is it is to fulfill all righteousness. And that phrase is used only here. So what does that particular phrase mean? But the Bible tells us that that after Jesus was baptized, it says that he came up from the water. There is more stress on this account and in the parallel account on what happens in connection with the baptism than there is on the baptism itself. The fact that Jesus is coming up out of the water suggests that this is an immersion. That after being baptized, Jesus came up from the waters. The heavens were open. He sees the Spirit of God descending on the, as a dove and a voice speaking, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, each gospel says it a little differently. 
One of the things that's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, listen to Luke's full account of the baptism. It's only two verses, Luke 3, 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Now, the part that is unique to Luke's account in Luke 3 verse 21. While he was praying. While he was praying. Only Luke has that note. Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism praying. And this is typical of the Gospel of Luke. All of those passages that do not have a book before them are from the Gospel of Luke. And all of them picture Jesus praying. He, uh, for example, is praying at the scene uh, when he asked the disciples, who do you think I am? In, in Luke 9 verse 18. He's praying at the transfiguration in Luke 9 verse 28. If Jesus is constantly praying, how much more do we need to pray? But he came up from the water and and his spirit is descending and the voice says, this is my beloved son. I hope you noticed as we were reading through Luke that both Mark and Luke speak in second person. You are my beloved son. Matthew speaks in third person. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, a whole lot could be said on that. Let's say... A few things, and I want to come back to that question. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? But one of the things that you see in the baptism of Jesus is you see the subject of the Trinity. Now, if you are like almost every other audience I have ever spoken to, there will be someone in the audience that disagrees with the word Trinity. I understand that. I'm not seeking to mock that. But I don't know of a word that explains the concept better. Of there being three persons in one God. Three persons in one God. This is not a subject that you hear preached on often, though it is often assumed. But in this scene, you see Jesus, the human Jesus, coming up from the waters of baptism. You see the Spirit descending. And you hear the voice from the heavens. The Father's voice speaks of Jesus as Son in verse 17. The Spirit is descending and the Spirit is descending upon Christ, upon Jesus. 
So you see these three parties of God, and forgive me for my language, okay? I don't know the best way to phrase it. Because we're dealing with three infinite personalities that are all one God. And you see them interacting here in a way that this is real. And how do you explain this if you only believe there was one person in deity? And yet the Father is called God, and Jesus is called God, and the Spirit is called God. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is referred to as God and Father. Jesus is referred to as God. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Holy Spirit is called God. Not as frequently, but He is. And, for example, in Acts 11, it's Acts um, 21, excuse me, in verse 11... When Agabus is introducing his prophecy that the Jews at Jerusalem are going to bind the man who owns this this belt, they're going to bind Paul, he says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. That's how he introduces his prophecy. This is what the Holy Spirit says. Old Testament prophets introduce their words with this is what the Lord says. This is what Yahweh says. The Agabus statement, this is what the Holy Spirit says, is meant to be equivalent to that. So Acts 11, Acts 21 verse 11 shows us the deity of the Holy Spirit. But I want to tell you, I really think we could prove that just from what we've studied so far in the Gospel of Matthew. That we could prove... That the Spirit is God. Remember when the Bible talks about the virgin birth of Jesus in Matthew 1 verses 18 through 25. That it emphasizes in verse 18 that the child was by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1 18. In Matthew 1 and verse 20 the Bible tells us that the child has been conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. And yet because he was conceived of the Spirit he is called and Luke 1 32 in Luke 1 35 the son of God if the spirit is not God how could Jesus conception by the Holy Spirit demonstrate that he is the son of God the Trinity is a subject like I stated that is not preached on often There are multiple reasons of that, and I have long since been fascinated by that and have some observations about it. But I'm going to limit it to that observation right there. The Trinity When you consider this subject, sometimes people, I have heard people emphasize, 
that if we don't mention the Holy Spirit as frequently as we mention the Father and Son, that we are somehow guilty of a great wrong. If a person over the course of preaching, this is not to dis- to criticize any special study of what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit or anything of that nature. But if a preacher is preaching the text, he will say more about the Father and the Son than he does the Spirit. Because he's, they are mentioned more frequently. And constantly, through the text, when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is calling attention to Jesus. Pay attention to that. Look at John 1, which is one of these passages, John 1, that talks about the baptism of Jesus. And begin in verse 32. John 1, 32. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. What was the point? Look at John 1, 32-34 again. What was the point of the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven? The purpose of the Spirit's descending is to emphasize that Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Spirit was to call attention to the Son. That is true not just in this passage, that is also true later in the Gospel of John. Look in John 15 and verse 26. In John 15 verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. Jesus says the Spirit is going to bear witness of me. In John 16 verses 13 and 14, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Far be it from neglecting the Spirit if we emphasize the Son, when we emphasize the Son and preach what the text says about the Son, we are calling attention to the work of the Holy Spirit in glorifying the Son, of the Holy Spirit in speaking of the Son. The Spirit's purpose was continually that. 
And we even see that revealed on the pages of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, etc. But it talks about the Spirit anointing on Jesus. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1 which we will allude to in just a moment. And Isaiah 61 and verse 1. All do this. Now, now we have just mentioned a couple of things. This is obviously no in-depth study of the Trinity. For those of you who do want to investigate this subject, there is about a 10 to 15 page article written in the old ISBE, the old International Standard Bible Encyclopedia by B.B. Warfield, who taught at Princeton for many years. And he wrote that by the time that was published in 1939. I think the article in 10 to 15 pages does a tremendous job of discussing the subject. What else do we... But, but let's, let's stop this Let me make a couple of other connections when we're talking about the Spirit. The Spirit is descending. Jesus coming up from the waters. There's a voice from heaven. Hmm. That sound familiar? In the beginning, God created. The heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, I imagine most of you know what book I was reading from right there. But in the first three verses of Genesis, the first three verses stress the Spirit of God over the waters and the voice saying, let there be light in the baptism of Jesus. We hearken back to God's creation of the world as God is going to create a new humanity in Jesus. And think also of this. Remember after Noah got off of the ark in Genesis 8? And the waters of the flood covered the earth that originally he sent out a raven. And the raven didn't return, but then he sent out a dove. The dove came back. The second time it came back with an olive leaf. And the third time it didn't come back. You see the description of a dove, the description of water. And that dealt with the days of judgment were passing. And the days of salvation for Noah and his family were drawing near. All of these images may come into play when we see these things about about Jesus. 
But, but it also teaches us something about the identity of Jesus. That this Jesus upon whom the Spirit is descending, He said, You are my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now in that statement, there are tied in several Old Testament allusions. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Are the words of Psalm 2 and verse 7, spoken to a king. And that king was told in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possessions. That psalm speaks of the king that is coming being a conquering king who would shatter all of his foes. He will use a, a rod of iron to shatter all of his enemies. Were the Jewish people wrong? In understanding their king as a conquering king, no, they weren't wrong. It just wasn't all of the picture. This is my son. This is my beloved son. A phrase that's often used to describe the relationship between Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. As he was taking Isaac to sacrifice him upon the altar. And that statement, in whom I am well pleased seems to be based on Isaiah 42 and verse 1. In Isaiah 42 and verse 1, a passage that's going to be quoted later in Matthew 12. That passage speaks of a servant of the Lord. That servant of the Lord appears again in Isaiah 49. He appears again in Isaiah 50. He appears again in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. This conquering king is also a suffering servant. The Jews weren't wrong to think of their coming Messiah as a conquering king. But he would be also a suffering servant. And those two pictures are combined. They're not inconsistent. He's going to conquer the greatest of our foes. Sin and death. Through his own suffering. Jesse made an allusion this morning to the fact that one thing that is so amazing about Jesus is Jesus knows what's going to happen from the beginning. There is one artist that painted a picture that has Jesus working in a carpenter shop. And he has his arms outstretched and has it behind him the image of a cross. And the idea in that painting 
is all through the ministry of Jesus. The cross hangs over Jesus. For he always knew that would be how it would end. It would be hard to live with that kind of realization. But at the baptism, God is announcing, this is my son. This is the conquering king. This is the suffering servant. What does it mean? To fulfill all righteousness. What does it mean? I'm not sure. And I would encourage you to take what I'm about to say with an asterisk. Because it's my interpretation. An interpretation shared by me. But it's an interpretation. It's not exactly clear. But isn't it interesting that when John is calling on people to repent... For the kingdom of God is coming, though Jesus will preach that message later, right now Jesus is not standing with the crowds announcing repent and come to baptism. Jesus is standing with the crowds. He's standing with the crowd. And he comes to be baptized. Maybe the idea of fulfilling all righteousness is Jesus is identifying with the sinners whom he has come to save. And he is standing in line with them even though he has no sin and he has done no wrong. That, as I stated, is an interpretation. I think there may be good reason for it in this text. The heavens were open in verse 16. Jesus makes, there's a statement made in Isaiah 64 verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That God would just rip the heavens open and come down and judge our foes and bring us salvation. In a certain sense, in the ministry of Jesus, that's just exactly what God is doing. God is rending the heavens. And He is coming down. Let us pray. O Lord our God, you are holy and mighty. You are deserving of worship and praise. And we, O God, are in awe of what you have done to save us. And help us to be reminded each step of the way. As we read the Gospels, or read any of the Bible for that matter. How this salvation came at great cost to yourself. We stand in awe of you. In awe of your mercy. And we praise your name. 
In Jesus we pray. Amen.